Hello and welcome to the Brain Food Podcast for General Counsel from Pinsent Masons. My name is Matthew McGee and I'm a journalist here at Pinsent Masons. Black Lives Matter protests have dominated the streets and the headlines this summer in reaction to police killings of black people in the US, sparked by the killing of George Floyd. The protests have led to more debate about the nature of racism in the US, the UK and elsewhere than we've seen for some time, and the spotlight has been shown not just on individual acts of brutality, but on the structural and institutional nature of racism in developed economies. Racial prejudice is ingrained from frighteningly young ages. Opportunities are given disproportionately to white people, and advantages of capital, class and culture that stretch back to the days of slavery still act in favour of white people and against the interests of people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. If you doubt how deep these roots go, just remember that the UK only stopped paying back interest in 2015 on loans it took out to pay compensation when it outlawed slavery and that the compensation was paid to the slave owners, not the people who were enslaved. So if you were listening to this and thinking, what has this issue got to do with business? Hopefully you're not thinking that now. This is an issue that's so ingrained into our culture that it affects your business, whether you've realised it or not. Business leaders might think that the world of commerce is reasonably polite and sensitive, that workplaces are civilised places with no overt racism problems but their employees will tell a different story. A YouGov poll last month found that black people in the UK were as likely to experience racism in the workplace as on the street. As we'll hear from organisational psychologist and leadership expert John Amici, most organisations believe they're meritocracies, and most organisations are not. Bias is part of processes, attitudes and assumptions. If you look properly, you will find problems, he says, and fixing them is arduous, unglamorous, boring and essential. Change must happen if the experience of Pinsent Mason's lawyer Alexandra Aikman is not to be repeated. Her experiences of racism in business are all the more shocking because they are so recent. This is very much a live issue. Stuart Affleck of Pinsent Mason's diversity and inclusion consultancy, Brooke Graham, will help us to navigate the kind of action that you can take now, to begin to address the problem. But first, let's hear from Alexandra, who works in Dubai, but grew up and started her working life in England. From the moment she even started talking about becoming a lawyer, she experienced barriers that her white classmates never had to face. So so I knew growing up that as an ethnic minority in the UK, I'd be more likely to be treated with suspicion, more likely to be in poverty, and, and less likely to be able to pursue my true career path. And that really started at school when I approached my careers advisor and let him know that I wanted to pursue a career in law. And he told me not to pursue a career in law because in his words, as an ethnic minority and a female from a state school and a single parent family, I would struggle in such a competitive industry. And then when I started my legal career as a trainee in Birmingham, which is the UK's second most multicultural city, and realised that I was again the only person of black heritage in the office at that time, until the cleaners walked in. So every lawyer was white, but every cleaner was black. And as I progressed through my legal career, I had comments like, 
you know, you speak well for a black lawyer or, you know, I've never worked with a black lawyer before, but you're actually really confident and you're, you're quite articulate. Almost as if that fact was surprising to those people. So when we talk about racism and we talk about Black Lives Matter, we're not necessarily always talking about overt racism. What we're talking about here is institutional, structural and systemic racism. And what we mean by systemic racism isn't that there are lots of racist people in the system. What systemic racism means is that even if there were no racist people in the system, the system itself would still discriminate or make it more difficult for a certain group of people to progress. Alexandra's experience is shocking, but it shouldn't be surprising. Business leaders now expressing surprise may be highlighting how great the chasm is in their organisation between the experience of black employees and the leadership of their company, says John Amici. What I'm hearing at the moment is a lot of people talking about how difficult it is to talk about race. They're talking to me about how how they how they were unaware of the experience of black people. And I would just tell the people listening here that there's a real there's a real implication for this, and it's an indictment of our organizations. It's an indictment of our organizations because not having the knowledge of black people is simply a question of never having created even one relationship that is authentic enough to be granted insights. All my friends know about my life and my experience. They they walk with me, they see what happens. So it's not a question of me talking about racism 24 seven, but they, they get to absorb what my life must be like and to empathize because they've built a relationship with me. Whereas right now we've got companies who are trying to solve problems with systemic racism in their organization who are for the first time in 18 years, in the case of one individual I talked to yesterday, speaking to their black employees. Companies that want to take action have to honestly investigate why this is happening. And to do this, they have to get over what for many is a large hurdle, understanding that racism is hardwired into countless processes, policies, habits and attitudes that don't seem at first glance to be about race at all. So admitting that your organisation has an issue doesn't require you to admit that you employ active racists. Still, not everybody accepts that racism is institutional, inherent in society's structures and ways of operating, which is why a book like Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge is so important, not only in making clear what the reality is, but also in expressing the exhaustion felt by black and minority ethnic people and having to argue that this is the case to people who are disbelieving largely because their ethnicity means they haven't experienced it. Companies that want to address this have to be bold and committed, says John Amici. The first step is self-examination. I would imagine that most organisations would find out that they had no idea the number of different ways that individually benign policies, procedures, ways of doing things, um, norms, values, that type of thing, unwritten rules, they had no idea of the number of different ways they combined it to create they they combined to create inequity and i'm i'm fairly certain that's what they'd find because we do these kind of cultural audits or organizational diagnostics with lots of different companies and they that's what they find they find that when you do a rich kind of ethnographic study one that gives you proper thick data you suddenly find out that there is inequity and you find out how it's being generated and it it 
while some of it may be because of um, poorly intentioned individuals, much of it is just because of the way the system is built. So things like people have proxies for talent. They will insist that a so many, many, many firms will only choose candidates from one of 16 different universities in the United Kingdom, one of three in, in, China, in mainland China, one of, one of two in France, one of, you know, that type of thing. And by doing so, you are creating an environment where only certain types of people will ever join your organization. Because if you only pick from the Russell Group, you're only going to get sort of, and, and anybody who thinks they can validate the fact that the Russell Group are across the board and distinctively better universities than, you know, I don't know, the uni University of Wolverhampton is deluded. Bright young people will go to lots of different universities. It's a proxy. It's a lazy proxy for having to actually assess people individually. Simple things like having unstructured interviews for candidates. We know that unstructured interviews lead to more subjective choices. Not training your interviewers um, and your hiring managers uh, to be objective in their assessments, all of these things. There's, there's so many simple ways that we facilitate bias in our workplace, but it's not necessarily, whilst it may not be evil in intent, it's not accidental. People like people who are like them. Similarity and familiarity are comforting and that's really the that's really the rub with diversity and inclusion, whether it be about race or anything else. It's individual people in positions of power choosing personal comfort over organisational performance. Stuart Affleck of diversity and inclusion consultancy Brooke Graham says that giving business leaders the confidence and tools to discuss an issue they may be wary about is vital. First of all, encouraging organisations to make sure that actually they shouldn't be shocked that this is happening um you know that's the first thing because this has been going on for for many years and you know so the first act of advice that we give is, is it's not to act shocked about this this has been going on and that's worth recognizing um but they're coming to us to to equip them and how to have the conversation giving them confidence and support and education around how to discuss race and ethnicity within the organization but also looking at this as a longer term plan and building that plan and not to knee jerk too quickly, but actually build a plan that is going to identify where bias may be prevalent in the employee lifecycle, in policies, in practices. Um, so you can unpick that hardwiring that might be built in unconsciously into organizations, which is creating that inequality. Looking at um, uh, removing those barriers to opportunity in education and the workplace now is also important um, and increasing representation wherever possible. So whether it be on succession planning and understanding and, and, and looking at the data to understand what is the diverse representation of people that are accessing training and education might be one thing. What are the, the things that you can put in place that will feed those talent pools um, with more diverse talent specifically from the black community. It could be everything from application rates through to all the stages of the recruitment process, for example, of interview to offer to acceptance to all the way through that pipeline. But then in relation to um, mining that data to, to understanding what's the diversity look like in specific business units within 
that organisation and understanding who has access accessing education, who what's the diverse mix that is actually going on to leadership programmes um, or on to um, career development programmes, which will basically um, enable that talent to progress within the organisation. Do a cultural audit, understand what parts of your organisation are causing the challenge. They will be often benign and seemingly unrelated to race or gender or whatever it is that are causing the real problems. It'll be a combination of things that individually are benign. Set a standard. Make your organization, declare that your organization will be anti-racist and not just not racist and help people understand what that means in action and in context. So not just broadly in the wide world, but in our firm, being anti-racist means these types of things. Show people the, the opportunity points where either mistakes are made, as in bias enters the equation, um, and also the opportunity points for shifting that. It's very boring, the work that has to be done. Nobody's going to slap you on the back, but the reward will be intrinsic. You're going to have the best brains in place. This education process where people are helped to identify what bias looks like and where it might happen can really help, says Alexandra, because it enables bias to be talked about openly. The best way to challenge those unconscious biases is to make them conscious. And the way that we do that is by having these conversations openly and allowing ourselves to be politely curious. You know, being politely curious isn't a bad thing. I remember being in a London office not too long ago and one of the white male partners said to me, what's your ethnicity? And I felt so good about the fact that he had just not beaten around the bush and just asked directly, politely and curiously, what's your ethnicity? And for me, that was really refreshing. Because you often get the question, oh, where are you from? And if I respond saying, well, I'm from Nottingham, the question will then be, no, no, where are you really from? Of course, they don't mean any, you know, offence by that. But what the implication is there is that you can't be black and from Britain. You must be from somewhere else. One of the things that businesses can really do or individuals within businesses can really do is to challenge their unconscious biases. Challenge unconscious biases by talking about them, by being politely curious but also by educating yourself about where those unconscious biases came from. And they really come from the legacy of slavery. Part of any audit will involve interrogating the kind of ethnicity data that employers gather. And Alexandra says that this is a goldmine that can help companies identify exactly where action is needed. What businesses can do in practice is to make sure that you have you know, networks within your organisation to address these issues and to have those conversations, to find out what the issues are within the organisation. And the best way you can do that is through a group of people who are fully engaged in that topic to truly do a kind of assessment and an analysis of the business and see where the gaps are. They can then go and, you know, take a deep dive into the data. And data is so important on this topic because only by understanding where a business is can it really understand where it's going. 
And by understanding the data, they can put meaningful you know, targets in place uh, and set tangible goals. But gathering the data is not a simple process or one that's untainted by the very institutional racism it's designed to fix. If you're an organisation out there like many who has really poor levels of, of disclosure, so the prefer not to say for ethnicity questions is up in the 40 percent, uh, I think you then have to realise that there are white and black people who are unwilling to disclose their ethnicity. And that's a statement about trust in the organisation. It, 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 and that has to be dealt with first because you can't demand people tell you who they are if they think by telling you who they are they put themselves at risk it's quite an indictment when you think about it of all the people who who prefer not to say on the on the survey it's quite an indictment of an organization if you prefer not to disclose we already know that when it comes for example to lgbt people that people who were out during college tend to go back into the closet when they enter the workplace in the united kingdom that is a statement about what they think the work, their workplace stands for, even with all their pride celebrations. The challenge is to try to build up trust in the overall aims of the programme and trust that your organisation will actually see it through, says Stuart. To get people to um, disclose their, that type of personal information, clearly, you know, beyond the hygiene factor of being clear with your colleagues around why you're gathering it and what you're going to do with that data. What I found often is vital is building that trust in the overall program of what you're trying to achieve as an organization. Um, And this goes back to the authentic point in relation to do your colleagues and people believe that you're actually going to take action and you're going to do what you say you're going to do in relation to not just how you're going to use the data, but but the positive action you're then going to take as a result of understanding that data. So far, we've discussed discrimination as a social problem, an issue of equity and fairness, clearly something that's important for responsible companies. But for businesses, there's another element to this, which is performance. Simply put, businesses that discriminate less on race are better businesses. They make more money than those that are less diverse. McKinsey found in 2017 that companies in the top 25% for ethnic and cultural diversity on their executive teams were 33% more likely to experience above-average profitability than companies in the bottom 25%. Stuart Affleck. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely um, stacks of research in relation to how race and ethnicity and the diversity of within an organisation can build in better performance, business performance. Um, and those stats are relatively well known um, in relation to, to how it can improve the bottom line. But fundamentally, it boils down to being able to attract and retain that diverse talent and that diversity of thinking, especially in you know the times where we are now where a lot of organisations are having to reimagine themselves uh, as they come out and emerge out of a lockdown, as we're going into a recession or depression, that diversity of thought is even more paramount now and should be protected as an asset rather than just seeing DNI or the lack of diversity and inclusion as a risk to mitigate. You know, it is really an asset to protect and nurture in order to claim those sort of commercial rewards of, of, of having that diversity of thought within the organisation itself. 
Researcher Joseph De Stefano found that diverse teams can perform to a much higher standard than homogenous teams, but warned that this performance boost only happens when the teams are well led. John Amici says that anyone looking for the best teams would be foolish to exclude a whole section of the available talent because of their ethnicity. For him, this is part of an overall drive for excellence, however uncomfortable the demands of that drive are. The beauty of well-led diverse teams is that they we, we know that they outperform homogenous teams, but but they also provide a kind of prescience for the future. Because the more perspectives you have, the more um, the more diverse your thinking and and experience base, the less likely you are to be kiboshed by a new piece of information. The more likely you are to have somebody who's seen something like this before, or who has an experience or a background that enables them to pull that together in a way that perhaps someone without that experience might not be able to. The performance benefits of diverse teams are, are well known. They've been well known for years and years and years. Having just diverse people in a, in, a, in a group is not what makes it work. It's having a leader who knows how to facilitate diverse teams, who knows how to create space for an introvert to talk in a meeting and knows how to shut up an extrovert, who knows how to, to, to manage the microaggressions that sometimes go on, who knows how to um, help people learn about each other who are very dissimilar. So there's an actual difference in role uh, in leadership for diverse teams. Homogenous teams don't need that because everybody's the same. And so the comfort level is instantly there. It's just the perspective is myopic. Because the goal here is not to have all boards be black or you know, a specific number. It's the very best brains in the very best spots. And that's unlikely to be the case if you've got 10% of black employees in your early years or associate positions, and then by the time they get up to the top, you've got nobody. Same thing with women, same thing with anybody else. Inclusion targets only one group. Inclusion targets the mediocre. It targets the people who've never been challenged for their position, despite being nothing more than adequate. And they've never been challenged because an entire group of people were filtered out at the CV stage because their name was too hard to pronounce. An entire group of people were filtered out at the interview stage because of the way their hair was done. Inclusion targets the mediocre. And that's why I think it's key for us looking forward to the future to get it right. Not just so black people get dignity and human justice so that organisations can truly have the best brains and the highest performers within them. It's natural and right that when a company is putting together a plan of action to address this problem, they will want to hear from people who have experienced racism and to be led by them. But there's a pitfall here, as Alexandra and then John point out. Well, the first thing that a good ally will do is to really try to educate themselves to understand the reasons for institutional, structural, and societal racism, because you know only by understanding them can we um, attack about our own unconscious biases, and that means not just relying on black people to educate you. You know, of course, engage with those conversations, but take it upon yourself to understand, you know, your own history. So it is still key to engage with black people on these topics. And that, not, that is not asking black people to teach you about it, 
but just asking for their experiences, being politely curious, you know, asking people, you know, how, how, how does this Black Lives Matter campaign uh, and movement affect you? And what more do you think can be done about this? Not expecting that they'll have all the answers, but making sure that they're engaged in the conversation, I, I think is key. The emotional labor of solving racism shouldn't be on the people who are victims of racism. So <clears throat> it isn't black people who are creating racism. It isn't even the presence of black people who are creating racism because there are entire environments that are entirely white that are rife with racism. So it isn't even the trigger of a black person that's causing it. So in organizations, you've got to have a systemic approach to this where you realize that it is the job of white people to be educated. It is the job of the systems of organizations, HR, legal and other, to make sure that they are eradicating the, the, the bias that is triggered by lazy, tradition-laid, under-examined processes and procedures. And, and that's a job for everyone, not just for black people. Black people are not libraries or librarians. They are not there in order for people to access information about blackness. They are there to do a job. So what role is there here for legal departments and companies to tackle racism? Well, there is a work of ensuring that the organisation is not in breach of existing discrimination laws, but John has described compliance as a very low bar for companies to aim for. There's more they can do, says Stuart. I think I think the legal function have an absolute critical role um, and can take positive action as a team as well as individuals. We often talk about this change, this culture change I've been talking about is both organ- at the organisational level, at a team level, as well as an individual level. And change needs to happen almost across those three aspects in order to drive what we would call sustainable change and to really shift the dial when it comes to the culture or the way that you operate and and how embedded it is in your DNA. But the legal team can absolutely have a critical role in this across all three levels. You know, working with colleagues, with other leaders, with HR, and I would say go beyond the provision of legal advice and compliance, um, but actually GCs can often find themselves in a sponsorship role of, of a DNI program or a work stream within that, and if not, then you know encourage them to actually take an active, active role in that. So, I think there's numerous uh, ways, both at a team level as a leadership level, but also look at the hardwiring across the organisation, those policies and practices, which often legal functions will have a hand in designing. Um, and influencing across the organisation. These are all cultural levers as to how inclusive an organisation can be. We've heard about the importance of educating ourselves about the problem and not using those affected by racism as our own personal library. In this phase of the Black Lives Matter campaign, anti-racism campaigners are more likely than before to tell people to go and read a book before jumping into the debate. The onus is on us to learn. To help with that, we've compiled a short list of some places to start, like Brit-ish by Afura Hirsch and Whistling Vivaldi, How Stereotypes Affect Us and What We Can Do by Claude Steele. There'll be a list at the end of the podcast where you can find details on the transcript of the podcast on pinsentmasons.com. We have been here before, where institutional racism or brutal treatment of black people lead to reviews, which make recommendations, which are largely unacted on. 
And we mustn't be complacent. Already some voices are questioning whether we still need to be talking about race just weeks after the killing of George Floyd. But we can be grateful that the issues are being talked about so widely, and we can at least learn to be a good ally, which is not just about being non-racist, but about being an anti-racist and about speaking up. And good allyship, says Alexandra, is something that gives her hope that the future might be different. The majority of the large corporates will be disproportionately white. Um, so, so allyship is going to be really important for those businesses in order to really drive change. And, and good allyship isn't just not being racist, it's, it's being anti-racist. So the question is, how, how do you do that? How do you become anti-racist? So really educating yourself on the reasons behind institutional racism it, it is what a strong and good ally would do. And then not, not stopping there. And then having those conversations internally. You know, talk to clients about this topic. Talk to teams about this topic. Because only by having those conversations and getting the message out in the open can we really champion change and, and all grow together in this. Um, and, and by having those conversations, you'll effectively be expressing your allyship so much so that other people will feel comfortable having these conversations in your presence. And that's, that's really key. I am op optimistic with the younger generation because what we're finding with this Black Lives Matter movement is that so many young people, you know, teenagers, are using their initiative to go out and pick up a book to go out and have conversations or in some instances to go out and protest. And that really gives me hope that the next generation of people that work for, for businesses like ours uh, will be a lot more open when it comes to the topic of race and ethnicity. But we can't rely on those people to, to make the difference. Every single one of us needs to take responsibility for this. And that means, you know, taking it upon ourselves to educate ourselves to have those conversations and to talk to the next generation of, of people, to talk to our children about this, to talk to our friends, our family, our clients, and keep this momentum and keep the conversation going. Thanks for joining us for the latest Brain Food for General Council podcast. If you want to educate yourself about some of the issues discussed, then some books that you might start with, some of these recommended by our contributors to this programme, are Black and British by David Olusoga, Brit-ish by Afura Hirsch, Natives by Akala, Bordering Britain, Law, Race and Empire by Nadine El Inani, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge, and Whistling Vivaldi, How Stereotypes Affect Us, and what we can do by Claude Steele. And remember, you can keep up to date with our by our coverage of business law news from the Outlaw Reporting Team at pincentmasons.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Brain Food for General Counsel was produced and presented by Matthew McGee for Pincent Masons, the international professional services firm with law at its core. <laughs>